Hello and welcome to The Firm, Clark Jeffers and Co Solicitors podcast uh, with me today, Victor Clark, Managing Partner. And today is an exciting day for some 200,000 companies around Ireland. It's the start of the Companies Act 2014, and yes, you heard me correctly. Uh, even though today, the 1st of June 2015, is the start date, it is a very large piece of legislation, some 1,100 pages, which has now been uh, in the pipeline for some 10 to 15 years. It's a bohemoth piece of legislation, but having said that we're going to endeavour to try and demystify it as best as possible through the main key areas. And to assist me with that, I'm joined today by Sasha Kearns, Tax Director of Grant Thornton, and Connor Sweeney, Managing Director of CLS Chartered Secretaries. Uh, listen, thanks for coming in, guys. Uh, you're very welcome. Um, it's great to have people who are very confident and know what they're talking about and, and, and heads in this area. So, look, I don't intend on beating around the bush. It took the legislature 15 years from the time they started this. So hopefully we'll get through it a bit quicker this evening. Um, if we start with just a general introduction, I mean, this is 1,100 plus pages of text. It's consolidating 17 acts. It's effectively binning 17 major pieces of legislation back to 1963. Big question is, is it necessary? Connor, can I go to you first? Absolutely. I think uh, if you, anyone that worked with company law in the last couple of years found it very cumbersome to deal with the Companies Act that we had because the first problem was with based on the PLC, where oh, less than 1% of the companies on the register are PLCs. So what they've now done is got the structure right. So the do, you default, to, do you want to clarify for us, Connor, what a PLC is? Well, a PLC is a publicly limited company, and it's you know used for very large entities, be it publicly traded companies or you know companies that had more than 99 members. Um, had to become PLCs. Big household names and other Absolutely. Yeah. You know, so what we now see is the standard, the default company is going to be the company limited by shares, the LTD company, which is the mainstay company we have. Mm. 86% of the companies on the register, works out about 166,000 companies, mm. uh, will be these, this company type. Um, so that's what it's trying to do. So even just the structure alone has got it to make it easier to go, right, 86% of the companies this is your first 14 bits in the act mm. are just for you. Forget about the other part, you okay. know. So even, you know, cutting down the amount of pages you've mentioned, you know, 1,440 sections, you're taking out a third. Well, you know, it's interesting that you say that, Connor, because I've noticed in here that uh, clients will come in from time to time after Googling a problem with the Companies Act, <laughs> and they'll have gotten an answer in the 1963 <coughs> Act, and then, unfortunately, they have to be told, well, that was repealed in the 1990 Act, yeah. and it's different now. And this was the problem with it. So is it fair to say that this is going to be a more modern act capable of being handled by people generally. Now, I'm certainly not advocating that people Google problems mm. in company law, but certainly for the mainstay sections, it'll be more user-friendly. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. I, th- I think that's that's what it's designed to do. Um, the language still is a little bit more technical than what the company law review group gave to the to the parliamentary draftsman. Mm. But in saying that, because of the structure and the layout is, is, is done right, because of each of the parts, you know, if you want a question on share capital, you go to part three. Mm. You know everything to do with shares. And, you know, if you're dealing with tax, they know part three has everything to do with allotments, transfers, sure. redemptions, buybacks. So meeting rules, part four, corporate governance. So, you know, the accountants will love part six. Well, I was just going to say, Sasha, whenever about solicitors and some of us, and I won't mention any names, I'm certainly not talking about myself, but some lawyers thrive on this complicated nature of acts. You as an accountant must love this, do you? Well, I, th- I think, Victor, on the contrary, I love the fact it's going to be simplified. You know, we're dealing with so many different pieces of legislation. When we look at it from the tax side, we have obviously a direct tax act, a VAT act, a stamp duty act. But obviously, when we were dealing with the Companies Act, you know, dealing with so many derivatives of pieces of Companies Acts over a period of time, when you can pick up one book and go to that place and find it and have certainty, that's what we're dealing with. And I think that's the whole thing about this. I think it's going to bring a lot of clarity to how we deal with this going forward and how we advise our clients. Well, the killer question then to you both is, is this going to make life cheaper for the average company owner in Ireland? I think from the point of view of when we have the conversations with people who are starting to set up businesses um, uh, and I suppose more so us on the tax side, the decision is, well, will, will I incorporate as an individual and, and start as a sole trader or will I start it as a limited company? And straight away they have this idea that it's much more onerous and much more, I suppose, uh, much more of a cost burden to operate within a limited structure. And you'd hope with the way in which um, the legislation has been drafted and some of the simplifications that have been brought in, that this will allow people to set up companies and operate them 
not significantly cheaper, but I think it will be cheaper, Connor, going forward and a little bit simpler for them to manage. Yeah, I think so. Like, I think we're going to see like audit exemption for companies is and for group companies mm. is something that's you know we're going to mention a little bit later on, probably in a little bit more detail. But that's a, a significant cost saving. The one director potentially could be a situation where it might be more user friendly to, to companies. But again, the other side of it is you're setting up a separate legal entity, and I think. Again, once you do that, there is duties and obligations imposed on the company. So everyone enjoys setting up a, a limited company and enjoying the benefits of separate legal entity and any tax benefits that might go with it. But when we try to take director's loans, which we'll also discuss later on, it is still a separate legal entity. Yeah. So we always have to match between you know, the ability to and the ease of using a new company now and, and have the capacity of an actual person but also undermining that you still are a director of that company you have to act in the best interest of that company. But I mean, even without getting into those technical bits, which you're right, we will discuss Mm -hmm. because I think they're important, but just take the company, the the, the general company on the street as it is. Let's take a small company that's been going two or three years. It might have one, maybe two employees. It's got a director who works 900 hours a week. Uh, It's one of these type companies. I think when when somebody's making the decision to go from sole trader to that type of company, I might just direct this one to you, Sasha. Um, the big question I always get asked in here as a solicitor, they want to be a company, but they're worried about the costs of filing and hiring auditors, etc. Will this act lighten any of that burden at all? They'll still have to continue their filings with the CRO. They're still going to have to produce their accounts. I suppose what makes it simpler is, um, as Connor has indicated, if they operate it through what's now called an LTD company, which we'll talk about the detail, they will only have to have one director and a company secretary. Um, and from the point of view of simplifying the what we call the governing articles, their memorandum and association, that will be gone. And, and a lot of those things will be made simpler. They won't have to, for example, have to have an AGM, some of those things. But in relation to the existing filing obligations, things like that, those will continue. Um, we always have the conversation, you know, I'm a sole trader, I want to, to operate in a company or I'm starting off. And um, there's obviously various different incentives within the tax legislation as to whether you operate in both. Um, so sometimes the incentives within the tax legislation can outweigh the costs on the company mm. side. But I think it's very important, as Connor said, that people understand um, the man on the street that my company is not me. They really need to think, we kind of say, it's a separate box, separate to you. Mm-hmm. You are yourself and your company is to- a, a totally separate um, entity to you. And once people understand that, I think that's important. But really, um, you know, within the, the market, it's become very competitive from the point of view of how, you know, the cost in which you can get a set of accounts done. The audit exemption is, is, is obviously there and can be availed of. Right. I think, you know, the government went out for a while in relation to, you know, this is going to cure all evil and you know, we're going to create another 50,000 jobs and stuff like that. I think what the biggest thing this act does for the small companies that you're asking about, it doesn't necessarily going to cut a huge amount of cost because as Sasha says, it still has to file at the company registration office. Yes, it doesn't have to hold a physical AGM, but it still has to hold written AGMs. But the big thing that it does, it brings us into the 21st century in relation to communication in relation to how our companies are governed. Because up until now, paper notice you had to send notice in writing of an AGM you know if you wanted to communicate with your members whereas now it's bringing us into electronic communication Mm. we're allowed and that might necessarily affect something the likes of a husband and wife company or whatever but if you take something like a company limited by guarantee with a couple hundred members you know, I mean, they have to send paper notices out if it's a charitable organisation. Well, a classic example of that now uh, would be the management companies for mm, general apartment blocks. Yeah, yeah and, I mean, the huge secretarial volume of communicating with everybody, I might certainly see that advantage. Exactly. So that's, that's where we might see. And that's probably what it's done a little bit more. It's just got us into the 21st century uh, instead of 63 you know, act era of legislation. So cutting cost, it, it, it definitely for the bigger companies, the likes of group companies and stuff like that, will definitely see a notable increase. You know, guarantee companies being able to avail of audit exemption for the first time, definitely huge. For the smaller company, not necessarily as much. But again, you know, we'll talk about conversion and stuff like that. The right thing to do is to get into this new legislation that it applies to. Let's let's just do that then. Let's talk about the (laughs) nitty-gritty of this. Sure. Because... There are some fairly significant changes. I mean, you don't produce seventeen or eleven hundred pages of text, even if you are relying on a couple of old acts, without making some significant advances. And I mean, one of those would be the change in company types, which are being introduced for the first time. Mm. Um, I suppose for the purposes of this, we could go into all sorts of public quoted companies and all sorts of things. But 
let's just confine ourselves to the smaller acts just to start with yeah. um, we've got obviously a limited liability company we have uh, DAC which is a, a brand new animal into this mm. and then we have some variants of the old like the, the guarantee companies etc yeah. so let's just have a quick look at the limited company for a sec the new limited liability company Connor do you want to start us with that that's probably your baby you're at the cold face of these now once we start yeah like the, this is the big decision 166,000 companies as we mentioned have to make in the next 18 months um, so that's the time frame in which you can choose between either being an LTD or DAC. But it's interesting, uh, everyone sees the DAC as the new entity type, but actually the DAC is the closest thing to what we've got. Well, do you want to tell us what a DAC is? Right. A DAC is a designated activity company, okay? And the difference between that is it keeps its objects laws. Okay, so every company up until the 1st of June was required to be set up for a specific purpose, its objects, okay? Now what it is, if you want to keep your objects clause or you want to be set up for a specific purpose and you want to be a private limited company, then a designated activity company or the DAC is going to be the entity choice. If you want full capacity of a natural person, the company limited by shares, the LTD company, is going to be the company type to go with. Okay? Well, this, this is undoubtedly the biggest change in mm. company law. I mean... Historically, companies were governed by objects. I mean, yeah. Sasha, you must come across these all the time in, in terms of trying to deal with people's fiscal positions, and in particular with regard to loans maybe that, that companies didn't have power to. Have you come across this? Yeah, well, you know, you're constantly looking at companies that may have incorporated, you know, years ago, and suddenly they want to go and do a transaction or do something, and straight away our first thing is, you know, is it within the objects cause? Can you do that? Can you hold shares? Mm. Um, as you said, Victor, can, can you give loans? And a lot of ca- cases, you know, when we look at stuff, that hasn't been considered by the people who are considering doing it. So it's very important that those things are, are addressed. This is obviously going to make it much simpler, much easier. However, in some cases, there's, there are companies that may continue to have to be DAX and, and will continue to have to have mm. objects. And under the tax you know, law, for example, film relief companies, you know, they have to have it within their objects that are going to be used for the purposes mm. of carrying out films. Yeah. Um, Credit institutions and insurance companies and the like. Exactly, yeah. who are required to do it. So they won't have, have the same um, ability to do it. But sorry, Sasha, isn't it fair to say as well that um, companies who don't have to be DAX can choose to be DAX? So they can choose to yeah. be a designated activity company. Exactly. So you ultimately have the legislation is effective from the 1st of June and there's an 18-month transition period. Okay. Um, companies, are what we used to call limited companies, I suppose, are now currently DAX okay. at this point in time. Yeah. Um, and until they elect to be an LTD within the 18-month period or if they do nothing within the 18-month period, they will automatically become LTDs. Okay. Okay. So a company, I own a small company, two or three directors, um, we have five or six employees, etc. The 1st of June has now come and arrived, and uh, what uh, I think the bottom line, what you're saying to me is, I don't have to do anything for that 18-month period. At the end of that 18-month period, I'll automatically convert to a limited liability company. Sorry. Trick and catch, of course, is that I'm going to be treated as a designated activity company, which in all honesty is the exact same as what I am now, isn't mm-hmm. it? Because exactly. I think, Connor, is it fair to say that the the real differences between the limited liability company as we understand it now, post the Act, mm-hmm. and what we would have been used to, what we've had before, is there are, there are big sweeping changes. For example, we've just discussed there's no objects clause, mm-hmm. so we've we've got we've got full capacity. Yeah. What else uh, does it differ? Well, the big thing is the, the one director. Of course, yeah. Um, that's that's a massive thing for a lot of people are looking at. You know, how can I bring it back to just me? Because up until now, we had to impose an obligation on somebody else to act as a director. Yeah. Now, we still have to involve two people because if you're the sole director, you can't act as a company secretary, as we mentioned a few moments ago. But again, less onerous obligation because you're not a director. Your, your duty isn't to secure compliance. So that's something that a lot of people are looking at. How can I get the one director straight away on an existing company? But just, just to pick you up on that now. Even though there's only one director and we've mm. got one culpability in terms of director, yeah. you mentioned that we do have to have a company secretary. Yes. And this act also brings in, for the first time, designated legislative obligations of a company secretary. Absolutely. And it is pretty onerous, isn't it? it, it it's onerous again. It, 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 the first thing it imposes is the requirement that the directors have a, ne- have a duty to ensure the company secretary has the necessary skills or resources. Okay, so what does that mean? Because there's no, there's no measure out there in relation to it. So again, you have to match it with the, what level of activity your company's carrying out. If you're a corner shop turning quarter of a million a year, the skills there would be preparing for the annual return, keep minutes, that kind of thing. Whereas if you're a 25 million turnover limited company mm. then obviously you're going to have to have greater skills and then the access to resources is where they can outsource 
the services to the likes of yourself, Sasha or myself, in relation to the company secretarial obligations. Okay. So that's something that kind of happens at the moment anyway, you know, be it the accountant or the yeah. solicitor or the company secretarial firm like ourselves looks after the filings or preparing the necessary forms or minutes. So that's, that's but I did, but I did see Connor, and and I know you're going to enjoy this one, Sasha. <clears throat> I I did see in the act that uh, audit auditors, you can't outsource your auditor as company secretary, or you have sorry, you have to outsource your auditor as company secretary. In other words, the company secretary won't be held responsible for those auditing provisions, and that will stay with the likes of Grant Thornton, for example. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but the, I suppose there are more onus obligations on directors within the act. I'm not going to go into the details now, but one point on that is interesting that within the director's report um, the directors now have to confirm that they have provided the auditors or the accountants with all the relevant information Um, so that's a big change from where we would have been before and obviously especially what's gone on with the various different inquiries that we're we're looking at at the moment (laughs) but just I mean who'd be a director (laughs) well who'd be a director right but I mean that's a a really interesting question Connor who'd be a director because historically we have this two man company Mm. and the two man company historically was made up of spouses one spouse who uh, was involved in the business on a day-to-day basis and the other spouse who may have been staying at home Mm. be it the husband or wife and who had absolutely no clue what was going on in the company and just signed their names and we've had some pretty high profile cases in the last while such as mrs quinn john quinn's Mm. wife who had claimed that she was just a stay-at-home wife and that she was only signing to make up the quorum of two etc and the courts really didn't buy these and all these spouses around the country have been ending up in terrible trouble Mm. So presumably the Act tries to address that by the one-man company, but then turns immediately around and says, but you have to have a secretary. So how many spouses are going to get dragged back in as secretaries now? Again, we were trying to understand where the CLRG were coming from. Uh, being a chartered secretary, I was happy that they kept us in a company, so it kept me in a job. Sure, right, <laughs> okay. but nothing like honesty. Yeah. <laughs> so we booted out the, the, the company, the, you know, the second director. Mm-hmm. And what I was looking at was, if you have a situation where the company secretary, and, and one of the obligations up until now was the objective to secure compliance was with the officers of the company, okay. and that included the company secretary. Okay? okay, But if I'm a company secretary but not a director, mm. I cannot influence our filing. I cannot influence the obligation because I can't vote at the director's meeting. Sure. So what they've done is they've taken away the, one, the, well, the requirement to have one director or two mm. directors and impose an obligation to have a separate company secretary. And their job is just to inform either the sole director or the board, this is your obligations under the company's acts. But the duty to secure compliance is still with the directors. Okay? Okay. So there's someone there as a watchdog, but again, they can't influence, they can only advise. Sasha, however happy Connor was at that last mm. comment, he must have really been dancing when he read the obligations of a secretary, which now a secretary can be a corporate entity. So, for example, out-servicing of company secretarial duties can be given to the likes of CLS. And um, Do you think that's a good idea? It certainly is going to help the poor spouse who hasn't a clue what's going on in the company and put it in the hands of more qualified people. Yeah, from that point of view, when you're dealing with probably the one-man company, probably make sure you know they're properly advised and they're complying with their obligations. Um, and you know, we talked about the owner's obligations of 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 people setting up companies for the first time, and they're really you know trying to understand what they're dealing with. So, with that kind of support behind them, it's it's definitely positive. Um, I suppose, however, it doesn't renege on the fact that you know directors need to understand um, what they're dealing with. And um, need to be very clear that you know the obligation is on them themselves, and they are they're now responsible under the Act under various different categories of default if they don't comply sure. with their obligations. But I mean, just jumping in on that, and we probably are getting a little ahead of ourselves because we are talking about the advances in the limited liability company. But I do want to take you up on that for a second. I think it is important for anybody who is considering acting as a director, be it a limited liability company or otherwise. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> you've correctly pointed out that. People need to know their obligations as a director and they need to understand this. And one of the criticisms that people had of the previous acts is that it was all common law, meaning that if you wanted to find out what your, what your duties were as a director, you had to go to relevant case law and look, you'd need more of a qualification than a solicitor to find some of these cases. Uh, this act, for the first time, uh, actually codifies uh, the obligations of a director. Isn't that right, Sasha? That's right. So it puts it on a statutory footing now and there's, there's four different categories of default. Um, and obviously with um, varying different implications for the directors. Um, so I suppose f- 
previously it, it might have been a little bit grey as to which particular default category a director might have fallen into we were relying as you said on 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 um on common law principles um now it's much more robust and it's quite readily defined within the act um so you could, you could for example google i'm a director what are my obligations and get this list isn't that right yeah and that certainly is a, a modern advance in the in the in the act however as a solicitor i do have criticism and that is Generally, lawyers and accountants hate to live in grey area. I had a look at the obligations of directors, and it is to act in the best interest of the company, not to act in conflict of the company, not to use the goods of the company unless you're allowed to use the goods of the company. I mean, this is all very subjective, isn't it? Could the legislature not have given a little bit more guidance on what is in good faith, etc., Connor? I think this brings back the importance of drafting your constitution, okay? Because a lot of what it says in you know, the fiduciary duties uh, is that it's not that you cannot do them either. Mm. It's that if you're released from them, if you're the power in your constitution or approved by the members in general meeting. So again, you mentioned the point about using the uh, information or the assets of the company or the property of the company. Now, where do we stop in relation? If I have a mobile phone, can I make a personal call? Mm. If I have a car, can I use it at the weekends to drive mm. to drive around? So again, where your constitution becomes important is that you give a de minimis usage, for instance, that the directors ought to de minimis usage of company property and information and anything else needs to be approved by the company. So in other meeting. words, the directors can do a certain amount without approval and after that they need to start asking permission. Exactly. Right? You know, okay. and, and, and I think that's to reflect practicality-wise. And again, it's... It's very hard to come up with a hard and fast rule for every company, mm. okay? Because as soon as you do, there's always companies that, oh, no, this doesn't play to us, or that's too onerous. So again, the use and the drafting of this constitution becomes quite important. And that's why, you know, there is a standard in the, in, in the back of the Act for a, a standard constitution for the different company types. Mm. But using that might necessarily be the correct format because that is the default position but then there's you know be it tax advice that Sasha might give sure. is there other legal you know what happens if you have one director one shareholder well just and on, they die yeah well you're you're leading me in nicely now to my next question because you're using the term constitution here mm-hmm. and um, uh, Seth and Sasha um, we've done a lot of work together and mm-hmm. we're well used to the fact that we're always looking for the clients articles and memorandums which anybody who's in a company will know a they're impossible to find when you go looking for them and b you've got to try and decipher them and then your solicitor tells you even though you've got all these pages of documents there's actually a table a inserted into them which isn't there but magically it does exist it's all very complicated you've brought up the point now connor about this constitution and sasha under the act this is only a one-page document for these uh, limited liability companies isn't that right Mm -hmm. so how much easier is that going to make life for the average well, I was going to say accountant, but I won't. I'd say the average, the average, because we're not too concerned about how difficult life is for you, but the average company owner, is this going to make things a bit easier for them? Well, it ultimately means that, you know, they can do, they have the objects or the, the ability to do, you know, whatever they want to do without being restricted by specific definitions within specific object clauses and things. Um, and... Um, I suppose when they're setting something up, we so so often someone goes and sets up a property management company, yeah. and then two years later they might want to set up a garage. Yes, of but course. But if that property management company hasn't been converted or has not got the 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 objects and the powers to go and carry out a retail activity mm. straight away, now we would have seen obviously um, you know articles of association and memorandum association, which would have had very very broad object clauses, and in a lot of cases we could have had the kitchen sink thrown in the middle of it. Um, but when you went to look the, for the specific definition you wanted, it might have been there. But suppose this makes it less complicated. Sure. And, and less think, complicated when we're reviewing things and less complicated when we're going to do transactions with limited companies. I mean, I see all these, um, you know, these rules to try and relax company law. But the one I liked the most was the introduction of an age limit now. You, you have to be over 18 to be a director. And Connor, this is going to directly affect you now because when you're setting up companies, heretofore it didn't matter who were nominated as directors, now you've got to um, satisfy yourselves that they're over 18, is that Absolutely, right? the age of consent, so, and that's director or company secretary. Mm. So, you know, sometimes if you, you're looking for that second person and, and one of your kids was offered to be acting as the company secretary, that can't happen now. So, again, it's, it's the age of consent. It's a, it's a big debate that, you know, has been debated up until now. But, again, it's, it's another check that you have to ch- make sure. I think there's a, there is just under 100 or more directors, I think, to come to the registration office had indicated before the 1st of June that will cease since the 1st of June to act. Well, um, we have clients who have a director who's only six. 
Okay. So presumably oh, that, that's interesting. Yeah. yeah. So presumably mm-hmm. that yeah. six-year-old will now have to step down as yeah. director. They'll have ceased acting from the first of June. They'll have to cease acting. That's a nice way of putting it. So just to just to very briefly recap on on this limited liability company and, and the various changes that are in. A, you you can have the ability to have a one man, but I presume you can have more than one person. If you Absolutely. Want, yeah. uh, B, you can actually we didn't discuss, but you can dispense with the AGM. Isn't that right? You can. Um, that's something that can be done. It still needs to be done every year in writing, and it's a unanimous resolution. But so, uh, assume, assuming that it's only a one-man company, yeah. I'm sure... Does it have to be in writing if it's a one-man company? It has to be in writing. Okay, okay. So. And, and that's where, you know, um, we'll talk about things they could have got right. That's one issue that, you know, if you look at, at the moment, a single-member company to dispense it a whole AGM for all in future calendar years. Mm-hmm. So you do one written resolution, it's done. Mm-hmm. Whereas the way this is drafted, you have to do this written resolution every year. Okay. So it's no different than the paper meetings that were allegedly being held up until now. Okay. So people thought, we've no AGMs anymore, but it's that's incorrect to say you don't have to have a physical AGM. Okay. I think one point there, Victor, just yeah, on the directors, on the, the one-man directors, and probably not... Um, as relevant for indigenous companies but for companies coming in to invest in Ireland or setting up subsidiaries in Ireland obviously the whole idea from a tax perspective of central management and control is important so who's 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 the directors of your company who's managing your company so you know if they set up a company and you have somebody who's in England who's the one director in the company mm. that could cause issues from a tax perspective um, and we we're having discussions with clients this afternoon around that so those kind of companies why they might want to change to LTD might need to make sure they still have their two directors or mm. their three directors yeah. to make sure they don't sure. cause themselves well just on that point um, and there's also a legal issue isn't there i mean now uh, directors have to be from an approved zone um so which is a eurozone but if they're from outside it yeah. my understanding is they have to lodge a bond of twenty five thousand euros to cover any penalties which might be levied so they've got more than just accountancy problems mm-hmm. uh, in that but even that that that's the case even if it's more than one person but i, yeah. I appreciate yeah. what you're saying in relation to the taxation side um so we've got these general changes, um, and, and obviously they are significant, and they should assist some people. I mean, it's quite ridiculous to have a husband and wife sitting down at the breakfast table holding an EGM, and taking the minutes of it and being required to take minutes of it, etc. Okay, um, so with that said, uh, Connor, can I just ask you to uh, finally summarise on the LTD? What options are available to uh, companies within the transition period? Okay, so... I- the, the first one is where someone wants to opt in straight away. They want the one director. They want a simplified company. So in order to do that, they have to opt in. Okay, okay. A special resolution, filing your constitution with the company registration office, and they will be converted. The second option, and, and Sasha had mentioned about opting out and being a DAC. Mm. Okay, so this is where you want to stay exactly where you are, keep your objects laws, keep the two directors, keep your memorandum and articles. But in order to do that, it's just an ordinary resolution, 51% of the members. Okay. File a new constitution and you will be opted out in the transition period. Now, you have only 15 months to do that one, where you have 18 months to opt in. Okay. The last option, then, is what I call the Irish. Okay. Do I'm not. interested in <laughs> Do nothing and hope it all works out. Exactly. It's, okay. it's, it's what I call the Irish, because okay. we're brilliant at that. Listen, do nothing, we'll get there eventually. Mm. And, and that's the, the option as well for people, is that, look, they don't see an incentive. There's no reason to convert, because the LTD company would be fine for them, but they don't see the reason to do so. Mm. And they'll automatically get there on the 1st of December 2016. And the only difference for those people, the Irish, yeah. uh, is that they will be treated under the rules of a designated activity company in the transition period. Exactly. They're governed by Part 16. Okay. Yeah. Well, with that being said, then, we better have a look at the designated activity sure. company so that all these people who are going to do nothing and wait know exactly how they're going to be treated. Sure. So, look, without getting complicated, uh, Connor, it's fair to say that a designated activity company is effectively what we have now in the limited company. You've got to have a minimum of two directors, so you can't have just the one like the limited company. Uh, you've got to have your AGM, and uh, you have a articles and memorandum. Yeah. You can't have a constitution. So it's, it's exactly what we have. Yeah. So what about those people who do nothing? Will they become a DAC or...? Uh, the people that do nothing will be governed by Part 16, so they'll have to follow the rules and regulations of Part 16, which is you know what we're used to, two directors, must hold AGMs, comply with their objects laws. Then on the 1st of December 2016, they'll automatically be converted into the company limited by shares, the LTD company. And I suppose that's the difficulty some people are trying to get their head around. I'm CLS Chartered Secretaries Limited, mm. and you want to convert me into a new company type called CLS Chartered Secretaries Limited. But the reason you go from limited to limited is because the automatic conversion... So there's no issue in relation to changing your head of paper, the van mm. has been sprayed or whatever else. So, But sorry, just on that point, because that will affect a lot of people, if you change to DAC mm. and your name, for example, is Company Secretary of Services Limited, yeah. do you have to be Company Secretary of Services DAC? Yes, you do. that's okay. correct. And I think the 
of particular difficulty um, industries are having is the financial services sector because up until now certain SBVs special purpose vehicles that listed debts and securities could operate through a limited company they now have to be DAX designated activity companies and they now have to go into the marketplace in Europe and explain we're a DAC. So, you know, and you can imagine, you know, most people are like, what is a DAC? Everyone knows what Limited is, everyone knows what PLC is, but being a DAC is going to be a, an interesting way to explain what you're looking sure, to but do. but I mean, this country has embraced GMBH, hasn't yeah. it? So, I'm sure... <laughs> or, or yeah, I'm yeah. sure Mrs. Merkel and co Europe will embrace the DAC. Um, so, Sasha, then, from a, a practical accounting point of view, why bother becoming a DAC? Is there any major purpose to it? Well, I think um, just looking at it from the tax perspective, I already mentioned that um, certain companies under the tax legislation may have to have objects clauses for the purpose of claiming certain relief, like the film relief. Um, also, um, in relation to some of the reconstruction reliefs we claim, so when we're trying to put in, say, parent companies on top of subsidiary companies, or we're trying to, say, split out a company that might have two trades, there's a stamp duty relief there called Section 80. Um, and the current stamp duty relief says that um, in order to get that relief, effectively, um, the company has to have an object that says its object is the acquisition of a target company. Okay. So a DAC now, or sorry, an LTD company now has no objects. So effectively, given the current, the way that the legislation is currently drafted, it can satisfy for the purpose of that relief, um, whereas a DAC can. Now, to date, the Revenue Commission have stayed silent on this. We obviously have a budget coming up in October and we may see some changes and, and um, made to that legislation in order to fit in with either a limited company or a DAC. Is this an anomaly or do you think it's designed to separate the two? Um, I think the legislation has been drafted from a company's act perspective yeah. to, to, mm. to deal with what, what we needed to do within Ireland to make things simpler. And I just don't think the tax legislation, as it's currently drafted, keeps up with that. So you would hope... Um, that there shouldn't be any um, discrepancy between the two and, and the legisl- tax legislation should certainly follow suit. Yeah, I think, look, there's all change here mm-hmm. because this is, you know, legislation that's been here for years and revenue legislation is based on a company having an objects clause. So it'll be interesting to see how other organisations catch up. And this is something that we've been trying to pose the question of, uh, and you've asked this, what companies should be DAX or at least consider being DAX? And if you look at anyone had central bank regulation you know central bank are silent on whether they should be required to be DAX or not because you would have thought they're carrying out a regulated activity so if you're an insurance broker uh, if you're a car guard selling PCP finance um, you're set up and regulated for specific activity Um, we don't know what way banks are viewing this in relation if they provide you bank funding to carry out a manufacturing then will they be happy that you have the capacity of an actual person Um, BS funders that's that's an interesting point Connor because what you're essentially saying and I think Sasha you're going to see this one at the coalface with your commercial clients lending institutions could effectively force you to become a DAC couldn't they? Well I understand all the the, their anti-money laundering um, setups and structures are all for two directors structures so Mm. suddenly all that's going to change and I haven't seen any any statements to date we now have this legislation that's effectively in place from the 1st of June and I understand they've made no changes to any of that Mm. Mm. Well it's it's, actually it's quite an interesting point because um, uh, you know one of the questions I had was could creditors for example force you to become a DAC? Um, members, uh, creditors holding fifty percent of the ventures mm. um, can actually go to the go to the court and seek an order to force you to um, become designated yeah, activity. To force you to force. Um, um, so again, there is powers there that they can actually do. Now, whether they actually will go to court or not will be will be interesting to see. But apart from that, it's very much up to the companies. But again, what we're trying to do is we've identified. We did a. You know, it's very hard to bring all this down into uh, into something that's that's easy right, to follow. One thousand one hundred pages. Exactly. Yeah. But we've identified about ten questions, ten different mm-hmm. ways in which companies need to consider whether you know they have bank funding, the BES schemes, the uh, enterprise board or enterprise Ireland funding. Um, do they have you know a designated activity company? Is there a shareholders agreement that you might be involved with in place? that is set up to this company to be specific activities. So again, if you do have any of those. It's the, the important thing to do is ask the question. Mm. You know what I mean? Well, that, that's an interesting one, Connor, because um, I had a client in with me last week who's investing in a small startup company, a substantial mm. amount of money. And he specifically, when I explained about the new act coming in, he specifically demanded that objects come in because he's scared that his investment will end up in something mm-hmm. different. Yeah. Um, so I suppose it's not a stretch to think that the banks, well, probably the banks will do it. It's not a stretch to think that yeah. individuals might, might follow suit. Exactly. 
Okay, so the final one I want to have a look at, um, and, and before I say that, I should hedge it by saying there are plenty of different changed types of companies, but for the purposes of this, we just want to look at the main ones. The final one we want to have a look at this evening is the Guarantee Company, which I think it's fair to say, Sasha, primarily used by charities and management companies of apartment blocks and housing estates. How are we fixed with these ones? That's right, Victor. Um, uh, within Companies Limited by Guarantee, we'd have a significant amount in Ireland of, obviously, um, management companies and managing residential apartments um, and big changes for, for them under the, under this Act. Um, and also, obviously, companies that qualify under the charitable status from a, from a revenue perspective uh, for qualifying charitable donations set up under that structure because they have to, and that's, that's okay. the requirement to get the status. Sure. But, I mean, <clears throat> let's just look at management companies for a sec, Connor, of which there are plenty out there. They've been given a bit of a gift under this Act, haven't they? The, their membership requirement has reduced from seven to one, yeah. which I think is a huge plus because... When we weren't recording, Sasha, you described it really well when you said seven randomers have to get together to form this company. And it is people who don't know each other yeah. in a housing estate. Um, and, that, and the worst part about this, and I, I think I'm positive and correct in saying this, is if one of these companies traded with less than the required number of members, then the directors became personally liable for debts of the company. Is that right? Yeah, there was, a, there was a big issue in relation to membership yeah. and trying to work out who are actually members because, you know, when it was being set up, it was probably part of the planning process and mm. maybe the developer went on with seven there people and they handed over to the members. Uh, I suppose it plays hand-in-hand hand with the Multi-Unit Development Act in relation to it provides that if you buy a unit in a multi-unit development, you automatically become a member of the company mm. and that's one unit one, one member, member yeah. um, so again that that brings it in but I suppose the big thing is that it was just for one member okay mm-hmm. so again we might have situations where we had a very small development and it only had maybe four or five but you were required to have seven under the act sure. so who was the other two um, mm-hmm. but again we, we always had difficulty so that's definitely going to be a big reduction audit exemption is huge mm-hmm. uh, and the requirement not to have an audit because up until now a company limited by guarantee was deemed to be a PLC are an effective PLC okay. requiring to have seven members requiring to have an audit again some management companies might decide an audit is required mm-hmm. because if I'm paying over service charges I'm going to make sure that the money's going correct way and stuff like that but again it's given flexibility and I think that's the big thing with the whole act in general it sets out bigger parameters and then individual companies can decide whether they need to have an audit or not well, you've, you've touched on something now, which I think is one of the mainstay things to have a quick look at, and that's audit exemptions. Um, Sasha, I'm going to throw this one at you. You're the accountant. Um, what is an audit exemption? Um, an audit exemption is effectively when a company can compile a set of accounts. It's based on information uh, provided by the directors of the companies. Um, and effectively that information does not have to be audited so effectively all they have to do is appoint an accountant to compile a set of numbers or compile them themselves Um, so from the point of view of an auditor writing a report to say these accounts are 100% correct except for materiality that does not have to be done so I suppose the bar isn't as high from the point of view of companies that don't require an audit exemption Um, all they have to do is effectively do what we call an accounts compilation so is this um, some form of self-regulation, is it? Is this the, the government deciding uh, smaller companies or companies entitled to an audit exemption to a point can regulate themselves by giving in this information? Well, I think um, from the point of view of um, compiling audited set of accounts, um, the costs are more. Um, from the point of view, you have to obviously appoint um, an auditor to do it. They have to forensically evaluate the information that's being provided um, and ultimately have to sign off and say yes these accounts are correct um, in an accounts compilation um, it's really the directors um, providing the information and the information being pulled together um, so less onerous is really the impact of, of audit exemption okay and I, I trust Connor you can't just decide you want an audit exemption and have one I mean there are rules pertaining to the fact that, for example, the legislation now differentiates between a small and a medium-sized company for the purposes of uh, audit exemptions and figures. So do you want to talk to us just very briefly and a little bit about if I'm a small company, uh, two-man company, four or five employees, and I decide what Sasha has said sounds great, Mm -hmm. I don't have to be hiring an auditor, I can get this exemption, it's going to save me a bit of time, it's definitely going to save me a bit of money. What do I need to do to get that? Um, in order to avail of audit exemption, it's a matter for the directors. So if the directors decide that they want to avail of audit exemption and they satisfy the thresholds, thresholds being a small company, 
Okay, mm-hmm. so satisfying the thresholds, that's under 8.8 turnover, balance sheet 4.4, average number of employees of 50. Satisfy two of the three conditions for the current preceding financial year, you can avail of audit exemption. So that's a big thing. Where it also brings in, for the first time ever, is small groups. Okay? okay, so something that Sasha would be involved with is putting group structures in place, maybe um, for succession planning or for various uh, bringing companies within a group using tax losses, whatever else. But up until now, once you went into a group, regardless of turnover, employees or whatever else, you had to have an audit done. So now if you satisfy the requirement of being a small group, which basically means if all the companies in the group are under together, when you take them all together, under 8.8 and 4.4, they can million. avail, of audit, million, they can avail uh, of audit exemption. And I think that's a massive thing for companies up until now because it fixes a lot of issues in relation to director's loans. It allows tax planning to be done yep. more efficiently, whereas... Yeah. A lot of companies resisted doing it yeah. because they um, they didn't want to lose this audit, and, and yeah. that's something you might. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, you're looking as excited as an accountant can get. <laughs> yeah, well, no, it is. It is yeah. from the point of view of you know we put a lot of of, of um, you know we're talking to clients and you put certain structures in place and you talk to them about um, the, the requirements under it from a tax perspective and obviously we tax plan and then at the end of it so very simply say for example I had a trading company. Um, and um, I wanted to go and put a holding company in place on top of that because suddenly I wanted to go off and invest in something else. Mm. Um, straight away by me putting a company on top of that, as Connor said, I've created what's called a group, okay. and straight away that would have required an audit okay. of both those companies. So now, um, as a result of the changes in the Act, provided they don't breach the thresholds, either the holding company or the trading company together, they now don't need to have an audit and it's funny when you talk to clients about um, the requirements for an audit and you, you talk to them about different structures that oh you have to be audited they really are reluctant mm. when they haven't been in that space before to get into it but I think I think rightly so I mean you know particularly over the last six years cash is king for small businesses and companies and the second you start mentioning look you need an auditor you need it sets off alarm bells in, in people's minds at extra expenditure yeah, and look, increases the compliance burden and everything. So I think from, from definitely from my perspective, this is really welcome change. Okay. So I think bottom line to what you're saying is uh, tax planning uh, for future generations of your business and retirement, etc. is absolutely vital. Take the money that you would have had to spend on an auditor and go to Grant Thornton and get the tax planning done. Definitely. Excellent. Premium tax advice. Excellent. Just one final point in relation to it is still to file on time. Okay. I think that's one thing that a lot of people up until now or we're hoping might have changed in the Act was this link with filing on time and keeping audit exemption. You still have to file on time for the current proceeding financial year. And just one other company type that can for the first time ever and we haven't mentioned up until now but it, it, we see a lot more companies going down the route is an unlimited company where okay. it, if one of the shareholders is an individual or has unlimited liability themselves they can, and are under the audit exemption thresholds of 8.8 turnover 4.4 they can avail of audit exemption. The interesting thing about an unlimited company is then it actually doesn't file anything then, only an annual return at the company registration office. So if you're into secrecy, if you want to keep your financial statements private, oh, sure, okay. it is something that um, more companies, more people are, are looking, maybe going down the unlimited route. Yeah, of course. I mean, if you're a small business in a town like Carlow or Wexford or Kildare yeah. or Newbridge or any of these places, you might not necessarily want to air your, all your dirty linen in public. Is exactly. That fair to say? Okay. okay, so moving on then to um, what would be near and dear to every company owner's uh, heart in this country. I mean, sometimes I find when I talk to clients, as you quite rightly pointed out earlier, Sasha, a lot of people don't understand the fact that they're not their own company and that there are embargoes. For example, you can't give yourself a loan without adhering to certain criteria from your company. And to that end, one of the big pieces of introduction under this new legislation is what's now called the summary approval procedure. So do you want to talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, effectively, um, I think this is going to be a real change from the point of view. We're going to see it primarily in relation to um, loans to directors. Um, we would have had, um, I suppose, um, the whitewash procedure, which which would have existed before, but was very different to what, what we will have now under the summary approval procedure. But effectively, what it allows um, directors do is ultimately make a declaration um, of solvency of the company. And effectively, the directors are saying the company, the majority of directors are saying the company will be solvent for the next 12 months and effectively allowing the company, therefore, make a loan to that director. Would, would it be fair to say, if I was going to summarise that, would it be fair to say that the summary approval procedure in certain circumstances can retrospectively fix, or not retrospectively fix, fix something which the company might otherwise not be allowed to do? Yes, from a company law perspective, it will. Okay. So, Connor, I mean, I presume this isn't just a wide open, oh gosh, we made a mistake, let's fix it using this summary uh, procedure. I presume there are 
barriers on this or there are boundaries that you've got to stay absolutely like the, the act sets out the criteria in which a company can give a loan to a director a connected person the, the one use in relation to this if it's going to be above 10% of relevant assets mm. then if you follow this and, and the idea of the summary but sorry just let, let's look at that sure I'm a company director yeah. I need a few bob I want to get a loan off my company company's worth 100 grand yeah. and I want to borrow 15 sure. I'm now above 10% of its net assets yes so heretofore I couldn't do anything about that could I you could and you're in breach okay. um, so to comply with the Act now, what, what you can do is use this summary approvals procedure. Okay. okay? And what it requires is directors give it a, a declaration of solvency, mm-hmm. a special resolution to the members. And in some of the transactions, but not in relation to director's loan, which is the big change, up until now the independent person had to sign off to state that the statement of the directors was reasonable. But that was something most accountants weren't happy to give and they were advised uh, not to. Open, uh, but now the change is it doesn't require an independent person to sign off. But again, if I'm a director and you're saying you're going to be personally liable for the debt to the company in the next 12 months, mm. you need to be pretty sure. Because that, signing that's off. effectively what the use of this summary approvals procedure is. It's, 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 uh, the, it's the law basically saying to you, sure, mm. give yourself the procedure for this, yeah. but only on condition that you peg yourself personally liable to the debt to the company. Absolutely. It. So it's a bit of a double-edged sword then. It's not really a gift, is it? Not necessarily. It again depends on the solvency of the company and, and there can be very genuine reasons for giving a loan in excess of 10% of the relevant assets, mm. but you're not barred. And as again back to what we were saying about the whole concept of this Act, it's not that you can't do it, but if you are, you've got to satisfy and protect the people that are there, protect the members and protect mm. the creditors in relation to the company. So again, we're trying to give the directors flexibility but within the correct parameters. And this is why getting proper advice no matter what they do in the company is important because you know as well as I do there's nothing worse than getting a call saying I've just done as opposed to (laughs) where we see it probably most often is where you would have companies that aren't within a group that we talked about earlier um, lending between each other and they have they are connected from the point of view of director or common Mm -hmm. party and they suddenly lend the money across and then suddenly oh I didn't realise that was a problem or they go and there's a guarantee and they have to they have to sign some sort of guarantee or some sort of credit facility mm. for the other company to get and they're not within that corporate group so this is ultimately going to help those situations so this is designed to remedy a genuine mistake only if the directors are prepared to put a bit of skin in the game and say mm. yeah uh, this is so genuine that I'm prepared to put my own fiscal yeah. Uh, yeah. fiscal uh, lines of credit up for bait on it and if it goes wrong I would be personally liable for those debts. Yeah, and I suppose the, the, the important thing with the transaction and the timing of it is it needs to be done within 12 months of given the of the transaction being carried out. So um, it's important it's done correctly, but it does give the directors this flexibility that previously wasn't there up until now. So if you realise, and as you say, yeah, Connor, you're dead right, Ms. Hatsashi, get these calls all the time, I just did the following, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and asking us how do we fix it. Now yeah. it is capable of being fixed, but I think really the, the um, nugget coming out of this is if something like that happens, fix it straight away. Absolutely. Isn't that it? Absolutely. Okay. Well, then, turning this whole thing on its head then for a sec, what if you want to give a loan to your company? As many people do, be it a startup loan or, you know, we've all got uh, company clients who are finding it difficult from week to week to make the wages. They decide to put in a little bit of their own cash. Um, does, the, does the Act uh, address people giving loans to their own companies at all? It does, yeah. It, I suppose the, the one fundamental change it has done is, for the first time ever, it requires either loans given to a director or, t- or where a director or a connected person gives a loan to the company to document those loans. Because up until now, we, we cover the rules in relation to what the exceptions were. But now it requires that if you give or take a loan from a company, you need to prove the terms of the loan in writing. Okay. okay? Um, if you take money from a company, so if a company gives a loan to a director or connected person, you haven't approved the terms of the loan, in, in civil proceedings that we can take in court, typically probably by a liquidator, they could seek that that loan is repayable and the man has borne interest at the appropriate rate. Which I think is 5%. It's, it's 5%, yeah. So, so if you've got a 100 grand loan over four years, mm-hmm. it's a fairly meaty end if a liquidator gets appointed and decides this was A, not in writing, or B, it was in writing, but it was ambiguous. Yeah. Uh, and he can decide it's payable on demand, mm-hmm. and he can decide that 5% interest uh, is applied. And that's a fairly serious mm-hmm. session, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I suppose the, the other big implication, I suppose, with my tax hat on is if it's not documented, um, it's deemed to be a gift. 
So, you know, that has huge ramifications from the point of view of, a, you know, a gift to a, to a director. Is it a distribution? Have we income tax on it? What are the implications from that? Um, also, conversely, if a director lends money into a company in a startup situation, mm. um, that's deemed to be a gift to the company. And from tax perspective, say we've two different shareholders, some, one has lent money and the other one hasn't. Mm. They're unrelated. You look through the corporate veil from a tax perspective right up. So one individual has lent money and it's a gift to himself, no tax implications. But he's also lent money to the other shareholder. Mm. And that's a gift as well. So it creates a huge amount of ramifications. And this is going to be effective, I understand, not just for new loans put in place from the 1st of June, but for any loans that are currently in place, any financial statements now being signed off going forward. Um, The accountants or the auditors or the directors need to ensure that those existing loans are documented to make sure they don't fall foul. Okay, and just two issues, and I have one question for you each on this. Um, Connor, if I create a loan to my own company and I diligently have my solicitor documented for me and make sure it's not an, an, an ambiguous and make sure with my accountant that it's not a gift, etc., um, do I have to register that charge? Is that a charge on the company or...? Uh, effectively, no. It, it, my understanding, but it depends on the terms again. But okay. it, what it's just looking for is, if it, it, again, it's trying to get us back to... And it's a difficult thing for the lay director to get their head around. You know, use the argument of somebody's working ninety-hour weeks. They see themselves as the company, okay. Mm. And it's now to come across and put themselves in a position. If I came along and asked the company for a loan, the first thing they'd ask me is, "Is it going to get it back? And are we going to bear interest?" So the directors have to see themselves in that position as well because they're not the company. So does it have to be registered? In, in most cases, not. Once the loan is approved in writing, typically a board meeting or if there's a loan agreement put in place by the solicitor, that will will cover off the requirement for the company's act perspective. Okay, and then Sasha, from uh, an accountancy perspective, um, and it's more than that because it's direct impact on somebody, in the event that money is lent and it's not documented or documented incorrectly, I assume that there will be a priority problem on winding up. So if a liquidator comes in and you decide, here, I'm owed money, you could be at the end of the pile. You are, yeah. You are at the end of the pile. Mm. Which is a bit of a disaster. Rank at the end. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, I think, obviously, it's very important to have this uh, capped off extremely carefully, mm-hmm. be it from in writing, make sure it's unambiguous, make sure that interest is there, mm-hmm. talk to your accountant, make sure mm-hmm. it's not to be deemed a gift. Because even a small amount of money lent into your startup, 20000 at a 5% interest bear over four or five years mm-hmm. before the problem arises... Mm-hmm. It's a significant amount of money out of your cash flow, isn't it? Yeah, and I think, you know, it's going to be a major thing for us when we're advising clients when they're setting up as to how to fund startups. Do we do a share capital investment or a loan? And a lot of times we would have before said lend the money in because it's a much more flexible way in mm. which to finance your activity. Mm-hmm. But obviously these conditions now need to be brought into the realm of the advice and need to be considered. Okay, great. I very much don't want to get technical now, but I do want to bring up one um, huge new introduction in this act, which is mergers and divisions. And I know this is, it sounds very American, doesn't it? (laughs) I mean, your mergers and divisions department. But in reality, one of the reasons it sounds very foreign is because before this act came in, Connor, it's fair to say that only public companies could merge, isn't that right? Absolutely. And it was something that was only available to them, whereas now this this allows it for... Uh, LTD companies and DAX. Now it'll be interesting just to see, if, you know, what what way to structure correctly because getting the appropriate company type is important, um, whether it be an LTD or a DAC. But it it mirrors a lot of the cross border mergers regulations that that were previously here before, but were only available to cross border mergers. But we can now apply to domestic companies in Ireland, which is great. And, and better than just domestic companies, small limited private companies. Because Absolutely. Sasha, <clears throat> I'm sure you find that particularly nowadays modern private companies. Uh, such as the tech industry, small startup tech companies, could be worth millions within a year or two of starting up as a private limited company. And before this, they would have had no ability to merge. So that's got to be good news for the tech industry or small tech startups, doesn't it? Yeah, I think commercially it's going to be very positive for those kind of for those kind of companies. We see so so many of them, you know, operating together, um, maybe in a different type of vehicle or trying to set up some sort of a JV or something. Yeah. Um, so definitely allowing this happen within those sort of structures and allowing scalability within that industry yeah. is very positive. So uh, you know, I'm all I'm all for trying to see the modernization of this act and i've got to tell you as a as a solicitor who operates in the commercial area it is fantastic to see the ability of private companies being able to merge now because we would have had lots of small private companies tech companies start off work nothing within a year they're coming into you saying uh, there's a company that wants to merge with us they're prepared to give us three million and suddenly you have all these headaches yeah. and you know i'm ringing grant thorns and i'm ringing yourself and i'm going how do we get around this they're only a private company so i think hats off to the legislature it's probably a nice insertion here yeah isn't it? absolutely yeah Great. 
Well, okay, we are, obviously we don't want to be talking about this ad infinitum, and there are plenty of introductions into the act that we could look at, but I want to finish up on what I think is one of the biggest ones, um, which is the provisions now governing examinership, liquidations, and primarily examinership light. I think this one was felt so important, Connor, um, that that it was brought in early, actually. It was brought in prior to the introduction of the main act. But you seem to be critical before before we went into recording of the fact that it was too late. Do you want to talk to us a bit about that? Yeah, I think this was something that was flagged by the Company Law Review Group back when they gave their report in 07 back to the government. And obviously, you know, the recession kicked in and, and, and pushed the, the requirement to have the Companies Act uh, commenced and acted um, sooner. But one of the key provisions in here was this examinership light where small SME companies could go to the local circuit court uh, and apply for examinership protection instead of going to the high court. But it only came out in 2013, um, and it's only really been commenced this year, whereas a lot of the companies that needed this are now gone, unfortunately or sadly, gone into either receivership or liquidation. So again, it's something very welcome, but just probably too many years today. Well, I mean, from a practical point of view, examinership light, I mean, examinership is core protection, Sasha, isn't it? I mean, it's protection from creditors. It gives the company uh, 75 days or up to 100 days on extension protection from banks, receivers, most importantly, etc., uh, etc. Et um, but it doesn't seem to be utilised. I mean, Irish local businesses don't seem to be taking it up. I think there's only been two recorded ones to date, and we're in almost a year. Yeah, I think, you know, um, from the point of view of a business that's there and that's viable, um, you know, the examinership process can, can be a fantastic process if it works, because ultimately what it does, as you said, Victor, is it gives the business a stay from its creditors, it allows it to continue to exist um, within the same structures, so the same limited company continues to exist. It allows the business to continue, and that's the big thing about examinerships. It allows the business to continue and to trade. Um, and during that period, obviously, the examiner that's appointed tries to come up with some resolution with the existing creditors to deal with the existing liabilities that are there. Sure. I mean, you know, from from a real useful point of view, it stayed off, for example, on welcome upward only rent reviews, you know, and it allowed scheme of arrangements to be put in place to deal with, for example, where you might have had a shop owner who had six shops and two were dragging the others down. It dealt with them in that regard. So yeah, I'm amazed that the uptake is so poor, but I think it's fair to say, and, um, and I suppose Sash here from one of the biggest accountancy firms in the country, Grant Thornton would generally be linked with the big examinerships, the multi-million euro uh, examinerships, and there's that perception that it's crazy money to get examinership, but it's not at this particular level, is it? I think the light level, now we would have had some big ticket examinerships that we brought through to the other end and have been successful and have continued to go on and trade. Um, But I think at at this level, at the examinership light level, you know, as you said, it can be the shop down the road or the two or the three businesses that are there. Um, And yeah, I think maybe it's a change in perception and education process that maybe needs to happen to make people realise that the the legislation is there um, and to make people realise what they need to do to avail of it. Great. And Connor, um, just speaking of modernising the Act and what we see here for examinerships and liquidations in particular, I read an amazing thing in the Act that uh, now examiners and liquidators etc are required to be qualified yes my jaw nearly hit the floor (laughs) these are people who are winding up companies on behalf of revenue on behalf of creditors on behalf of companies and they didn't have to be qualified there was no qualification required at all Um, and that's you know one of the things that it's looked to do now the other side of it is it has a grandfather rule in there so if you're not a, a qualified person but you've been doing liquidation for years you will be grandfathered in but again, in time when, when those grandfather people uh, will move on or whatever, it will require that you are either a qualified accountant, a member of a, uh, an accountant institute, you're a solicitor, or someone recognised to, to do liquidations, which is only right. you know. But I think the standard all along in Ireland anyway has been regulated, particularly the insolvent ones, by the Director of Corporate Enforcement now, and your dealings with the Director of Corporate Enforcement uh, to regulate that area, but it's definitely something that's very welcome. Excellent. And the big burning question then, and I feel we've got to address the elephant in the room at some stage, guys. Let's talk pricing here for a sec. We've all these companies, 166,000 private companies, plus your, uh, your guarantee companies, plus everything that's out there. And the big question on everybody's mind is, okay, this has happened now, and I, I potentially have to do something. What's it going to cost me? So I think, Sasha, if we, if we turn first, it's not fair to start looking at what, what it will cost. I mean, every company is different. But... Let's look at it a different way. What should I consider 
when I'm making this decision, that, that, because that will ultimately dictate the costs. What should I consider? So from a tax point of view, I'm a small company. I've got 25 employees. I've got four outlets. Let's call them uh, record shops. Uh, probably not the most viable in today's market, but I've got four record shops in four different towns. I've got 20 employees, and I come into Grant Thornton, and I sit down, and I say, I'm thinking of changing. This is happening. What should I consider? Yeah, well, we need to look at the existing business. We need to look at the existing agreements that are there. We need to look at, as we said, bank confidence. If there's outside shareholders, we need to look at those. And we need to look at any other considerations from the point of view of um, the current structure the company's in. And what are the ramifications for them if they are going to, obviously in that scenario we've talked about, it may be more beneficial for them to use, move to the limited company structure, one director, one company secretary, much easier to, to, to maintain on an ongoing basis. But we need to make sure there's nothing in there that's obviously going to scupper or have a negative impact on the moving to that. Um, and it's very important we sit down and we have the conversations with the existing directors um, and that they're informed. They need to understand the differences here and they need to understand and be informed so that they can make those those decisions going forward what's the intention of the business not just today but in two or three years time and sometimes people don't think about that they only think about what they're doing today um and could there be any ramifications for that down the line and should i use this uh, changeover as a company director should i use this changeover to have a look at my financial planning for the future oh look i think you know i think it's very important that that um that we look at it um you don't want to cloud the whole situation by making this too complicated picture but i think you know sitting down we constantly sit down with our clients and look at where they're going in the future and where um and um to make sure they're properly structured to do that i think that's the conversation mm. you need to be having mm. um in relation to this um, and in relation to family businesses, succession, all that kind of thing is so important um, and what we do a huge amount of. And could these structures have any implications down the line? We've already talked about the director's loans and how important that is on the tax side as well as the company's tax side. Sure. I mean, I'd love to sit here and say I've read the 1,100 pages. There's probably 50 or 60 I haven't looked at yet. <laughs> See, everybody's smiling at me now. But <clears throat> I think I read somewhere that if I miss this deadline, I'm obviously going to incur extra penalties. Isn't that right, Connor? I mean, I, I, extra filing fees, etc. So money will be ejected from my pocket for that mistake. Yeah, if, if you go down the automatic route, and this is something people are, are trying to grapple with at the moment, should they do the conversion in the transition period? And what happens if they automatically become an LTD and they should be a DAC? Yes, you can convert, but then again, you're going to have to pay for the conversion then. So the right advice would be is to see whether you need to be a DAC. Ask the questions. You know, we've a document up on our website. It's a very simple 10 questions. Here's the things you need to consider, and a lot of them we've addressed um, through the course Give of the presentation. Give us that website address, Carl. Um, it's cls-charted-secretaries.ie, and it's yeah. just up on our blog. It's a it's a two pager. The first, you know, the front page sets out you're an LTD, whether it be a DAC or an LTD, and on the far side it's ten questions. These are the things you should consider. But if you answer yes to any of them, you definitely need to convert. It's just whether it's yeah. an LTD or a DAC, and that's something that's hard to to define in in a, in a two doc two pages. But I think Sasha, it's fair to say that if you do. Uh, do this wrong and if you do suddenly after the 18 month lead in period think oh gosh I should now the advice of my accountant now I should have been something else it's not the end of the world is it? No it's not the end of the world there's flexibility there to convert um, obviously there'll be costs associated sure. with that Um uh, and obviously not availing of it within the transition period but you can go back more paperwork more complications but obviously you can get to the end result but I think the flexibility within the new act is welcome um, we would have companies which would have been limited companies converted to unlimited for various different reasons and previously would not have been allowed to go back and reconvert to limited okay. now under this new companies act they will be able to do that um and obviously um as you know commercial drivers change and people's situations change they need, need that flexibility okay. i suppose uh, just very briefly it goes back to something we were talking about earlier which is although the flexibility might be there and you may wish to change in the future if you have certain bank loans etc you're not going to be able to execute that flexibility without the consent of your lenders or your backers or your investors but mainly with your banks if you're a small business so really the importance is getting it done now where you don't really have to ask any permission at the moment before you get a loan whereas afterwards you're certainly going to need it isn't that right absolutely yeah. absolutely okay, okay final question question from my guests um have they missed a trick i mean this is a huge piece of legislation uh the question is does it modernize? Does it do everything that it should? I mean, I know it might be unfair to criticise them, but I'll start this off. I can't believe that the requirement for a company seal 
in a modern act such as this is still there because I can tell you now as a solicitor I'm sure Sasha uh, you are constantly faced with it every time you go through a transition uh, a transaction for a client big transaction small it doesn't matter you ask for the company sale it's been lost everything is delayed while you find this thing so I certainly uh, think that that is something that they've missed Connor your opinion if they missed anything um, the, from a practical perspective about the AGMs we all know they're, they're written paper meetings and what they should have done was mirrored what they have for the single member company regulations where you can dispense for all the future calendar years you know two shareholder company we still have to do written AGMs so again they, they could have mirrored that what we currently have a lot of it they've got done I do know there were, the department were inundated with requests for changes and stuff like that and should include sure. stuff so we're definitely going to see a new act every two years to bring a lot, a lot of this in but Okay. It's definitely an approval. Just what we need. Yeah. More additions to this behemoth. <laughs> Sasha? Um, I think with a new piece of legislation, you know, um, it ends up being, you know, work in practice and we don't really know what the implications are going to be until we start using it. But um, I think the additional requirement for the director's loans and the documenting of that is going to potentially have a commercial impact on smaller businesses. And what point in time do those director's loans have to be documented? What position are we going to take? And how does that inter- interlink with the whole tax analysis of the situation? Um, so not just a bugbear, but really from a practical practical level with small companies, how are we going to manage that on an ongoing basis? Okay. I do have one other one. I know you only asked me for one. I'll just briefly put this one in as a relation sure, to audit. Okay, you wouldn't be in business if you didn't have more than one gripe. <laughs> it's a relation to audit exemption because we mentioned about you still have to file on time. And if we go late, um, you now have to have an audit done. Now, there is one advantage in there that you can go to your local district court and seek an order to give yourself more time. But there's still the requirement, if you don't get that order from the local district court, you have to have an audit done. And and where it's unfair to a certain extent is that while you're late, you have to have an audit done, you occur three year all day. Whereas there's no benefit to anyone because those counts are probably nine, ten months out of date. Mm. Whereas if you're allowed to file them late, lose audit exemption for next year, at least then you can sit down with the accountant and say, look, what do I have to do to comply? But the local district court thing is definitely something that... Uh, that it's an benefit. extra expense, isn't it? It is. Yeah. yeah no. And I think in, in modern times where <clears> businesses <throat> are have been struggling for the past six or seven years and are slowly and hopefully, and I touch wood when I say this, cl- clambering back on their feet now, it's extra expense they probably don't need. Exactly. Okay, well, I mean, look, that's been around about an hour. Um, it's obviously a huge piece of legislation to try and encapsulate in something like this. But uh, I have to offer big thanks to uh, to Connor Sweeney from CLS and to Sasha Kearns from Grant Thornton. Your expertise and input into this is most welcome. And uh, all I've got to say is thank you very much. Thanks, Victor. I should point out that today's interview uh, does not purport to be, and nor is it, legal advice or accountancy advice of any description. Every company in every scenario is different, and we strongly encourage everybody who is interested in the company's act or who is affected by it to seek their own independent accountancy advice and legal advice. Clark Jeffers and Company solicitors are experts in the area, and we would be absolutely happy to help anybody, uh, as would my uh, guests tonight, Connor Sweeney uh, or Sasha Kearns. Thank mm-hmm. you.